Well, it's time for the Word of God, and I'll give you one guess as to where we're going to speak from this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, of course, the 11th chapter is where we are, Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. Matthew 11, verse 25 through 30. I didn't mention, while you're turning, I didn't mention the fact that in the back there's a black box for offering. And you may uh, place your gifts, financial gifts to the Lord there when you depart this morning. I remember years ago, I was down in Texas, my wife and I was preaching in a church about 35 years ago or so. And the pastor, it was an installation service for a pastor of churches, Marshall, Texas, in fact. And this pastor said that... Um, he didn't collect offering during, during service. They had a box. People came in, put their money in, and, they ex and I thought, wow, that's different. Never heard of that. And three and a half decades later, here we're doing the same thing. <laughs> Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this, wa this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Now does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus' invitation to salvation is the title I have chosen for the exposition of these verses I just read in your hearing. Salvation is a divine work. God initiates it, he sustains it, and he will consummate it. Every aspect of salvation from sin and the consequent eternal punishment of it is from God from start to finish. And it is by grace. Grace, by definition, is not owed to any man. No one's entitled to the bestowal of grace from the hand of God. He chooses to either grant it or withhold it. The Bible teaches this reality in both testaments, um, of course. For example, to the nation of Israel, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, these words, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. End of quote. They had witnessed the great signs Israel had. They had seen the deliverance. They had seen all the miraculous things, the wonders, all of that. But God had not at that point given them understanding. The text, of course, is not referring to physical inability, as I just suggested, but spiritual inability. And the spiritual inability is a result of human depravity. Fallen man cannot rightly perceive or truly believe in his natural state. He is wholly dependent on divine grace. Joshua, 
chapter 11, verse 20 says this, For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord commanded Moses. Yahweh judged the Canaanites, the Hivites in this particular instance, by withholding mercy from them. And because he did so, they did what they wanted to do all along, to seek to fight and to destroy Israel. If God leaves men alone to do what they want, they will invariably and inevitably sin. They will follow the evil desires of their heart. They will not turn to God for salvation. They turn away from Him. And God withheld mercy from these individuals and um, they did exactly what they've been wanting to do all along. Fight God's people and destroy them. God bestowed upon them, poured upon them temporal and eternal judgment. Our text includes the reality of the matter of grace and it being withheld in chapter, in verse 25. Jesus tells us so. And I think that's important uh, to hear our Lord's words here because so often we have a, an incomplete view of the mind of God and the mind of Christ. The verses I read at the end there, verses 28 through 30, are more familiar to us than the previous verses. I noticed how it resonated with you. Because you've heard those, and it is good to hear those wonderful truths of invitation. But the reality is, Jesus said some very tough, hard things prior to getting to those points, those verses. May I add this? We've got to take God for who he is. We have to accept him for who he has revealed himself to be. I said last week, anytime we come up with a construct in our mind of this is my God the way my God would do it, my God wouldn't do that, what we've done, if it doesn't conform to the word of God, is nothing but an idol. Now, let's begin to look here. I, I want to use as a heading, praise from the Son. Jesus is praising the Father here. You see it, verse 25, it says, At that time Jesus said. We need to stop here for a moment because I need to expand on it. The original wording of the text is this. At that time Jesus answered and said. Answer? I don't see a question there. Answer? Answered was a Hebrew idiom, which means to speak out openly as opposed to privately and confidentially. Jesus is going to, he's inviting, in fact, it's an invitation to follow him. It's open to anyone who will come to him on God's terms. As he does this, he also, you'll notice, he praises the Father. In regard to the cities, listed in verses 20 through 24. You recall that Jesus denounced those cities and Jesus pronounced a woe on those cities in verses 20 through 24. 
the Jewish cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, Jesus' own headquarters, he pronounced a woe on them, judgment on those cities. Because they rejected the gospel. They rejected the kingdom of heaven. They rejected their Messiah. They turned away in the face of many miracles. They said, we don't want you. They didn't persecute Jesus. They just didn't want him. They were busy with their own lives, their own interests, and their own cares. And though they saw the miracles that validated who he was and his message, they said, we don't want you. Leave us alone. But you notice the word here, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father, on the heels of words of denunciation and pronouncement of woe. And he says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Those words, Lord of heaven and earth, means his sovereignty. His sovereignty. And in his sovereignty, the Father uh, concealed the truth, saving truth from the inhabitants of those cities that I just mentioned, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Jesus praised the Father for that. Specifically, you'll see in verse 25, it says this, You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. You need to understand right away, when you ease your burden, there's nothing wrong with being wise and intelligent. These qualities do not, per se, disqualify a person from the grace of salvation. Moreover, there are many wise and intelligent followers of Christ. What Jesus means is that these kinds of people depend on their wisdom, on their intellect. They're self-sufficient. They rely on human wisdom. They are, as one commentator put, know-it-alls. They disregard the wisdom of God which alone leads to salvation. The wise and the intelligent say, I really can make it on my own. They're full of pride. Their pride is a stumbling block over which they trip and fall into hell. The scribes and the Pharisees fit in that category. In their self-righteousness and in their self-sufficiency, they didn't think they needed the gospel. Human wisdom is impotent to unlock the door of salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God in his wisdom bypassed human wisdom. God in his wisdom bypassed those who decided to rely on their own wisdom. That's what the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum did in their pride and self-righteousness. They repudiated divine wisdom. As I mentioned a moment ago, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They refused their Messiah. They 
saw the miracles substantiating his message of repentance and faith in him for salvation, but they said, no, no. Keep your place here. Go with me to John chapter 12. Some sobering words. John chapter 27. Pull out some truths here that will help us see this even more. Jesus is our speaker. John 12, 37. And John is writing here. But though he, speaking of Jesus, had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. Notice this. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? Very few. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It was revealed to Israel. This is a text that was written 700 years before Christ, but is applied to Christ and his ministry. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a figure of speech talking about the Lord's power. How is his power revealed? By the miracles that Jesus Christ did. But few believed. Who has believed our report? Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded, verse 40, their eyes, and he's hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. By the way, this prophecy applied in the situation with Jesus in Israel was not outside God's plan. It was part of his plan all along. And God hardened their heart because of their refusal to believe. It's an act of judicial hardening. It's an act of judgment. Divine hardening is judgment on people who have chosen evil. Condemnation of a guilty people. Keep that in mind. You do understand that to refuse to believe on Christ is sin. It's to refuse to obey what God has said. It is sin. Those who insist on hardening their hearts against God may find themselves hardened by Him. A person is at risk crossing a line. They've hardened their heart. They've hardened their heart against the gospel, hardened their heart, and God says, I'm hardening your heart. You will not be able to believe. It's an act of judgment. I remember as a kid, watched this guy on television. He was preaching that. I had no idea what he was talking about until I grew up and understood what scripture was. I said, oh, that's what he meant. People can do that. You see, I said earlier, God is not obligated to extend grace to anyone. 
when he extends it, person better receive it. So that the wise and intelligent has been hidden from them, concealed from them, and Jesus praises the Father for concealing the truth of salvation from those who said, nah, I got this. In verse 25 again, the other group revealed to them there are the infants, the bottom of verse 25. To them he reveals the things of the kingdom, who Messiah is. Reveals to them salvation. Infants, of course, Jesus is not referring to literal infants. Jesus in the New Testament, you understand, he often uses children to, uh, to illustrate spiritual truth. Infants here are the ones that are humble. Infants are dependent, like Lennox. Yeah. She's dependent on her mother. <laughs> That's what Jesus is talking about. Those who understand they're helpless. The polar opposites of the know-it-alls. Infants are the ones who recognize their spiritual poverty. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, God, I have nothing to offer you. I know what I am. Bankrupt before you spiritually. I have absolutely nothing. I'm helpless. You have to save me. You remember the man in Luke 18? tax collector. He wouldn't even lift his head to heaven. He just bowed and said, smote his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. No, the sinner. The contrast here between these two groups, again, is it's not between the educated and the uneducated, but between those who think they can save themselves and those who know they cannot. The infants know they can't. They, they, they know they're dependent. They know they have nothing to offer to God. If you don't save me, I can't be saved. If you don't reach down and grab me out of my sin, I'm going to go to hell. That's the kind of person that God saves. He recognizes I can't help myself. Verse 26. Jesus praises the Father for his concealing and revealing in the lives of these individuals. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. It is well-pleasing in God's sight to reveal His Son, His truth. It's pleasing in God's sight to conceal the truth. Both are true. Both are proper. Both are right. Jesus was pleased that the Father would do this. Think about this. Jesus is saying, you've got to con con connect this contextually. 
in verses 20 through 24, the father hid the truth from them because they said no. And Jesus said, Father, it's well pleasing in your sight. For those who would receive him because the father revealed to the infants, said that's well pleasing in your sight. Whatever pleases God ought to please us. Jesus lets us know that. <laughs> Divine election and human responsibility are not incompatible. The ones that God has elected will believe. Those whom he has not will not. But they are responsible for their rebellion. D.A. Carson, an eminent commentator, a retired professor, writes, Jesus' balance mirrored the balance of Scripture. He could simultaneously denounce the cities that did not repent and praise the God who does not reveal. For God's sovereignty and election is not mitigated by man's stubbornness and sin, while man's responsibility is in no way diminished by God's good pleasure that sovereignly reveals and conceals. End of quote. God is sovereign in it. Yet man is responsible for his rebellion. I know that's hard to handle, isn't it? It's hard to get our minds around that, isn't it? But both things are true. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Let me state again, God does not owe us revelation. He's dealing with a race of sinners. Keep that in mind. God is dealing with a race of sinners. What did man do when he got general revelation, when he looked up and saw the created order and recognized the eternal power and Godhead of, of the creator? He suppressed the truth. Romans 1.18. Praise from the Son. Next heading, revelation from the Son. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus asserts that all authority, sovereignty, power, and truth have been handed over to him. In view of uh, the context in which uh, these texts is given, in particular, saving revelation. Jesus is the exclusive revealer of the Father, whom he refers to as, notice, my Father. When Jesus says, my Father, he is not talking about God the Father like we talk about God the Father. When we say, our Father who is in heaven, we're talking to him as our Father as adopted children. That's a profound difference between being the son of the Father in terms of essence, in terms of nature. In other words, when Jesus says, my father, he is equating himself with God the father in terms of 
deity essence and nature all that constitutes deity he's saying that's who I am my father and I are one he is speaking of their essential oneness in fact Jesus said in John 5 that my father works and I work whoa you say God the Father works and you work? If you can do what God the Father does, you must be God. You must be equate. And you know the Jews got that. They say he makes himself equal with God. And they want to pick up stones and stone him. He's one with the Father. So when he says, my father, he's saying something more than what you and I can say. You can't say my father like Jesus says my father. The father and son share the same essence, same attributes, equally fully. All that constitutes the divine being, they share. Jesus goes on to tell us, in verse 27, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Whoa. And no one knows the Son except the Father. We'll try to unpack this. It is one thing to know by equality of nature and another by the condescension of him who reveals. The father knows the son because the father and son share the same essence, the same nature, unless it was revealed to us. We couldn't know who Jesus really is unless it's revealed to us. Because we don't occupy that relationship, that self-enclosed relationship of the father and the son. They know each other perfectly. They know each other fully because they share the divine nature. They've been in communion for all eternity. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. We know, you notice the text says, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And the Father has revealed the Son. Keep your place here. Let me give you an example. You've read it a jillion times if you're a Bible reader. Matthew chapter 16. We connect these text. 16.13 Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do, pe who do people say that the Son of Man is? And this is what people were doing. They said, oh, John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah, you know, the prophet. And others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They all got it wrong. They didn't know who he is. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, thank God Simon Peter's mouth is always available. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. 
the son of the living God. How did he know that? Amen, whoever said that. God bless you. From whom? The Father. Verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Father knows the Son, and the, and the Father revealed the Son to Peter and the other disciples. That's how they knew. No guesswork. How are you going to know the Father? says in verse 27 you can back, go back there nor does anyone know the father except the son and to whom the son wills to reveal him did you get that the son his will is involved in who gets to know the father you can't know him on your own like, oh, I can figure this Jesus out. No, you can't. The son's sovereign decision to reveal the father. If he doesn't do that, if he doesn't reveal the father to a person, a person cannot know the father savingly. No salvation. The sovereign will of Jesus Christ. Um, John chapter 17. I need to share this with you because I was going over this last night and underlying and marketing as I do on Saturday nights. So underlying red pen and all of that highlighting stuff. And as I was doing that, I got to this and the Spirit of God showed me yeah he did John 17 he brought it to mind I said that's right <laughs> not that I question his I'm thinking for myself yeah right I remember this text John chapter 17 6 it says this Jesus in his high priestly prayer it says this I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. He's talking about his disciples. That word manifested means to reveal, to show. Jesus showed them the name of the Father, who the Father is. Jesus did that for his disciples. That's how they knew. Men that you gave me out of the world, they were yours. They belong to God by election, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus manifested the Father to the disciples. The reason you know who God the Father is, the reason you call him Father in the sense of you are an adopted child of God is because Jesus revealed him to you. The son reveals the father to infants. Verse 25. The humble, helpless, and dependent ones who know they cannot save themselves. He's to reveal. And he's willing to reveal the people who are helpless, who are weary and heavy laden. 
Salvation in the Son. It's our next point. Jesus is willing to reveal the Father. Verse 28. Come to me. Mm. Wonderful words. Come to me. The call to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord and Messiah. He is the Savior, the only Savior of sinners. He says, come to me. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The reformers had a slogan, Solus Christus, Christ alone. It's the only one that can save a person. He says, come. He said, come to the religious leaders and you will... You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life, John 5, 40. He said, you guys won't come to me that you might have life. Come, come in faith. They said, no. Jesus said in John six thirty five, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Come and believe are equated. They're the same thing. When Jesus said, come, he says, believe in me. Have faith in me. Then he says, in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Come. Come to me. And this invitation is for any and everybody. He says, come. doesn't matter where you come from. Come. And in the context here, specifically to specific people, he says, who are weary and heavy laden. The weary were those who uh, had worked to the point of exhaustion trying to earn salvation. They were seeking to be right with God and they exhausted themselves. That's what the word in the original means. They hadn't succeeded. They were weary trying to get right with God. Jesus said, come to me. Heavy laden. This picture is a beast of burden. A mule or a camel, for example, loaded down with the owner's goods while the owner walked beside the animal and berated and even beat the animal. Jesus used this image. Uh, and the people whom he was speaking to immediately recognized because they'd seen the scene a million times. It was the false religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, had placed an intolerable burden of, get this, man-made regulations and traditions on people, their fellow Jews, legalism, do this, do these things that we make up. Couldn't save them. They were notorious for that, those scribe, scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says about them in Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, 
but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That is, they offered no help in achieving the fleshly goal, trying to be saved by what they did following the man-made rules and regulations. You know, the Pharisees had no interest in grace, had no interest in forgiveness, had no interest in mercy. None of that. Jesus said, you were heavy laden, burdened down with all this man-made stuff. Come to me. And notice what he says, and I will give you rest. Give you rest. Quoting Jeremiah 6.16, our Lord applied, he said, I personally will give you spiritual rest. Anapao is the word in the original for rest and rest from their self-effort to achieve salvation, which is impossible. Rest from the delusion of works righteousness. Rest from the reality, the false matter of trying to attain salvation by self-righteousness. Salvation rests to all who come in repentant faith. Jesus, I'll give you rest. That's what he means. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The yoke was placed on the neck of a horse or, or, or an animal used to pull a plow or cart or harness. By the yoke, the master was able to control the animal so it could do useful work. The, the animal really was under the uh, submission of the, the one who placed the yoke on him. Yoke, then, is a symbol of submission. Control. When I was a kid, my father hired uh, Mr. Crittenden. Mr. Crittenden had a son. He and I were uh, classmates, grew up together. Man lived in our neighborhood. The whole Crittenden family lived in our neighborhood. And I remember, and this is back in the 60s, so forgive me if I can't tell you the color of the horses. Mr. Critton, but I remember those horses. Mr. Critton came down. He was going to plow up this field. field. It belonged to our family. And uh, Mr. Critton was a slight man. Those horses were big, at least from my perspective as a young kid. But he got those horses to do exactly what he wanted them to do. They went down, plowed up a row, and then he whatever, and they turned around, and he went, they went back the other way, and whoa, all that stuff. Those horses did exactly, those horses were more powerful than Mr. Crittenden, but they obeyed him. Turned to the yoke. We're under the yoke of Christ. Jesus said, when you come to me, you take my yoke upon you. You submit to me. We, you will be in a relationship of submission to me. You will obey me. I am the Lord. And you learn from me, he says. The revelation that I will impart to you. Now get this, brothers and sisters. We become submissive learners, or we did become submissive learners 
And we're being taught by him through his word and obey what he teaches. That's how you know you're in submission to Jesus Christ, not because you say it, but because you do what he says. I am weary of people proclaiming their uh, love for Christ, then you're not obeying him. Now, we're not saying you're going to obey perfectly, but you have to submit to him, his authority. That's what Jesus calls. When he, he saves, he intends to rule over the life. Do you get that? Yeah. Let me tell you something. He is not like the Pharisees, the scribes. He's not like their false religious leaders. Mm-mm. Submitting to Jesus is good because of who he is. He says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He gives rest, not weariness. You will find rest for your soul, salvation rest. Permanent rest in the grace of God. Don't have to try to earn it. Jesus just freely gives it to you. And you say, but uh, I still got a problem with that yoke. Uh, no, the problem's not with the yoke. Jesus says, verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those who truly obey Christ do not find his commandments burdensome. God's people across the ages have realized the delight in obeying the Lord. The reality is when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your attitude toward God and his word changes. You delight to keep his word. Psalm 119, verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Psalm 119, 70, I delight in your law. Psalm 119, 48, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. Oh, how I love your law. Psalm 119, 97. Words, law, commandments, testimonies, synonyms for the word of God in their different aspects. The reality is when a person has experienced a transformation of their nature by salvation, their whole attitude toward God's word changes. Delight. Ah. Did I forget to, forget to write this down? I did. Guess what? I remember. First John 5, verse 3. We're about to conclude. Hmm. Listen to this text. For this is the love of God. First John 3. First John 5, 3 that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not 
burdensome. They're not. You love God, you'll keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You see, your nature's changed. The Holy Spirit lives within you. And you find that Jesus' words that is burden. It's light. It's light. Now the question is for you, if you're not a Christian, will you come to him? The invitation is to you. What will you do with the invitation? You can side with Chorazin, Bethsaida, or Capernaum. Or you can be on the side of the infants. Which will it be for you? For those of us who are Christians, we thank God that he has saved us and we're under his yoke, submissive to our loving Lord, fulfills our deepest need, gives us delight as we follow him and our lives are useful and purposeful as we're guided by him. Bless his holy name, amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth uh, that we've uh, addressed this morning in these few minutes. May they uh, find deep resonance in the heart of the saved. May they bring convicting power and transformation to the souls of those who are not. Disabuse those who think somehow they're pretty good and they're good enough, they're better than others. Help them to see, no, they need the Savior. And they'll come to Jesus Christ. We pray you do these things for your glory first and foremost and for their spiritual good for now and eternity. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.